welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. I mean, this is the other concerning part of the reasoning of the Fair Work Commission, and that is that it seemed to say that it was better or easier to make this cut for these workers because they were not in career jobs. The recent Fair Work Commission decision to cut penalty rates for workers in the retail and hospitality sectors raises serious questions about the future of work and our priorities around protecting the wages of some of our lowest income earners. This week on Women on the Line, we're going to be discussing the penalty rates decision and specifically its impact on women who will be affected. First, we'll speak with Lisa Heap, Women's Lead Organiser at the Victorian Trades Hall Council, and then we'll hear from Sarah Charlesworth, Professor in the School of Management at RMIT University and who gave expert evidence in the penalty rates case that went before the Fair Work Commission. My name's Lisa Heap and I am the Women's Lead Organiser at the Victorian Trades Hall Council. We're going to talk about penalty rates today, so could you explain the broader context of the Fair Work Commission case and the review into penalty rates? The attempts by employers to reduce penalty rates has been ongoing for quite some time and it picked up speed in around about 2013. There were more concerted efforts by employers to make changes and they made applications at that time to reduce penalty rates, particularly in uh, retail and hospitality area. Originally that was knocked off and then subsequent to that the uh, Fair Work Commission made a decision in 2014 to reduce casual rates in uh, restaurants in terms of penalty rates and then there was a report by the right-wing organisation the Productivity Commission into review of uh, workplace laws and they recommended a complete overhaul of penalty rates. So there's been a momentum building by those who are, are you know on the right of the political spectrum to to attack penalty rates and the push on that is about you know a view or an ideology around work that says that employers can so- increase so-called productivity by reducing labor costs that is by reducing wages you therefore increase productivity by sort of some sort of mechanical definition of productivity so it's, it's been part of a really strong ideological push for quite some time and When this commenced, the union movement sort of expressed its concern that this was kind of the beginning of the push and people, you know, in the broader community were saying we were a bit alarmist, but we can see now that that's been an overall strategy for quite some time that's now coming to fruition. Now we have a conservative federal government. In terms of that ideology, I think part of that as well, in terms of this sort of broad mechanical definition of productivity, is the idea that changes like this will create more jobs. I mean, what would you say about that? Yeah, well, I mean, that was part of the employer's case. But as far as they got and as far as the commission, the Fair Work Commission got in its decision was a statement that said it could increase employment. So there actually is no evidence to suggest that there is a causal link between reducing costs and increased employment or reducing penalty rates and increases in employment. And that's a really important thing, I think, for people to, to grapple with it's really a leap of faith that's been taken by the Fair Work Commission to say, well, we'll make this change and it might um, have, have this impact. But what we actually know from all of the research that's been undertaken for years and years in this area is that there is no causal link between those two things. And it's really quite concerning that the Fair Work Commission chose to 
ignore the evidence before it of the impact on this and come down in favour of something about that it could make this difference, even though the evidence wasn't there to support that. Mm, it does seem to be a really persistent argument. Yeah, it's a persistent argument. And because it's put so continuously, I mean, what happens is people start to believe it. They think, oh, people wouldn't keep saying these things if it wasn't true. But the reality is there's no evidence for it. And we, we absolutely know that it's not likely to increase employment in sort of the retail area. You know, the employers have sort of shown their hand basically saying, well, it means that people could increase their working hours in order to make up the difference. And that's a good thing. And they say it's a good thing. It's an incredible statement that the Chamber of Commerce and Industry came out with on International Women's Day saying this is a really good thing for working women because it means that they could work for longer hours in order to get the same amount of pay. And that was terrific. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a good deal to me as a working mm-hmm. woman that I have to do more hours to get what I used to get before. It just doesn't seem logical to me. You mentioned the retail and hospitality industries before. I mean, who exactly is going to be affected by these changes? Yeah, so what we can... really know, I mean, and this is really disappointing that, that more wasn't taken account of this in the Fair Works Commission's deliberations. What we really know is that this change will have a disproportionate impact on women. So, for example, 54% of those who are in the retail and hospitality industry are are women, and most of those, of course, are employed part-time or casually. What the evidence tells us is that those who are relying on penalty rates to meet household expenses are more likely to be women, sole parents, or people who have a combined household income of less than $30,000. They're also more likely to be people in regional or rural Australia. So we can see there, there's a particular, you know, this decision has a particular impact on a particular group of people in the labour market. And those are the people who are at the lower end of the labour market and who are relying on penalty rates in order to make ends meet. And that's what's most concerning about this decision that the Fair Work Commission, part a lot of the Fair Works Commission's reasoning in relation to the matter rests on this idea that there's an, ex- an expectation in the community that services now will be available in these areas on the weekend and that that should be taken account in decision-making. But what the Commission is really doing in, in this decision is saying, well, that expectation of the community, if it exists, outweighs the livelihood of some of our lowest earning people in our community, people who are relying on penalty rates not to have the extra holiday and the like, but to actually put food on the table. And that's what I think is really significant about this decision. It's got a class impact and it's definitely got a gender impact. There's certainly a gendered thinking there from my point of view, that the valuing of this work, which is seen as women's work, it's predominantly done by women, is less than the value in other areas. But also you have to unpack why are women doing these roles? Well, they're doing these roles, particularly working on on things like Sundays, because career jobs or jobs in the nine to five, Monday to Friday workplace are not flexible enough for them to carry out their childcare or elder care responsibilities. And so, you know, you'll find that there is a large number of middle-aged women who are working Sundays in particular because that's somewhere where their extended time where their extended family can help with their childcare costs or other care arrangements and they can make up the family budget or the household budget by working those hours. 
And for those workers, for example, for a retail worker on about $600 per week, the cuts uh, in penalty rates equate to an $80 loss per week or four to $5,000 per year. Now, when you're not earning a lot of money, that's a big loss. So I would like to know as well, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking in the back of my mind is about, it's really interesting that employers choose female-dominated industries to target first for these sorts of initiatives. So these industries are less likely to be organised, they have less collective power, so they're more vulnerable workers. And they're, you know, predominated by women and that's where they're going first because, you know, the employers have already foreshadowed a possible application to change the hairdressing provisions as well. So another mm. female dominated. So we're going to see this come through. So they're going for the most vulnerable in the labour market first. And that's a really interesting thing for people to think about, I think, about why. Why are they doing that and why are they targeting people who are less likely to be organised, less likely to have collective power and, you know, are we really going to end up with a kind of have and have not labour market where, which is very much the American model, anyone who's been to America knows this, where you've got people who are relatively well off earning and on good conditions and good health care associated with their employment and the like, and people who are in service industries, largely women or from minority groups, who are struggling to make ends meet and who are having two and three jobs to try and make ends meet. Not what I thought we'd ever have in Australia, I have to say. The good news is, I suppose, that these cuts are yet to come into play. I think they're due to come in, in early July and there's a campaign to yes. stop um, this going ahead. So could you tell us about that and how listeners can get involved? So we really, I mean, the first thing is, yes, you're right, they haven't come into effect and we've got an opportunity. So there's a very focused campaign at the moment to put pressure on all political parties to make a commitment to override this decision and not allow these things to take take hold so people can get involved in that campaign the, the easiest way first of all for people who are interested in is to get onto our megaphone petition platform which is megaphone.org.au and sign our petition um, and through there you will be able to tell your stories particularly if you're working in the hospitality and retail area that's firstly affected by these changes we're also going to need people who are prepared to put pressure on to get political leaders to make a different decision. And people can do that through getting onto the Trades Hall website, which is weareunion.org.au. The Victorian state government has recently announced that it's going to have a review into this, to the impact of this decision on Victorian workers, in particularly the most vulnerable, the younger workers and the women workers who are impacted by this change. So that's welcomed that sort of review and people need to make sure that their stories, particularly those who are directly impacted, are heard by the Victorian government. And again, if you get involved with the VTHC process, we're going to be collecting those stories to make sure they get before the Victorian government. So, yeah, we've got this moment in time to try and put pressure on for a different a decision, for a political intervention to stop this from happening and to say that we don't want a society where we have the haves and the haves not, we don't want a labour market that values some workers well and other workers poorly. And that's our first port of call in relation to this at this stage. Women on the Line. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. We're bringing you coverage of the Fair Work Commission's decision to reduce penalty rates for some workers in the retail and hospitality sectors and the impact of this on working women. 
my name is Sarah Charlesworth. I'm a professor in the School of Management and in the Centre for People Organisation at Work at RMIT University. And together with my colleague Fiona MacDonald, we gave expert evidence in the penalty rates case that was before the Fair Work Commission. Could you provide some insight into the broader conditions of the review of penalty rates by the Fair Work Commission and and why this is taking place now? Okay, well, under the Fair Work Act, the the conditions of awards are set and so we've got a series of modern awards. So the relevant awards that we're discussing at the moment, or one of the relevant awards is the General Retail Award. And modern awards come up for review every four years. And as part of this review, employers and unions can put in, you know, claims around specific conditions in awards. In some cases, like the penalty rates, it was decided it was a common issue across a number of awards. It just didn't pertain to the one award. So that the Fair Work Commission decided to have um, a common claim hearing. And so that's what they did. And they took an extraordinary amount of time about it. An enormous amount of evidence was provided. I should actually point out that in 2012, in the interim modern award review, we'd been through this exercise before. So the Fair Work Commission also, and I also gave evidence in that particular case. um, And in that case, the Fair Work Commission decided not to alter the penalty rates. This time round, my take on it was that the employers were really desperate to do something about it. And in the intervening time, the Productivity Commission had reviewed penalty rates. I'm a co-convener of the Work and Family Policy Roundtable and we made a submission both to the Fair Work Commission in the first instance and then when we saw their interim report, we were pretty shocked because they actually recommended that penalty rates in the low-paid feminised industries be reduced as distinct from professional workers like nurses, like firefighters, etc. Somehow they were quarantined. There wasn't a very clear rationale, but somehow we were given to understand that they were distinct, which was ironic because those industries have always been 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year industries. That's that's the nature of them. All hospitals work, you know, round the clock, for example, as do fire stations, as do police services. And I think what's sitting behind it is very much a sense that the work that people do in the retail and hospitality industries isn't real work and therefore that the workers who perform that work aren't real workers and so we've seen in both the 2012 interim review employers and you see this in the papers not just in the submissions but also in the latest review which interestingly started in 2015 and really the decision was only delivered in 2017 so it gives you some idea of how contested and how long the process was But there is an argument that sits there as, look, these people are just university students or they're just mothers with small children and it suits them to work on weekends. So why why should we be paying them extra? It goes the line. And we're also seeing now a similar line with the national wage case. So the government's arguing, well, you know, some of these low-paid workers are in fact in households, you know, they've got a partner who earns a medium or a decent wage, which is... Really, to me, we're really going back to the dark days where we view the money that women earn as somehow pin money as supplementary to the family or the household income because that's really code when people start talking about there being other higher income earners in a particular household. How that is a justification for having lower wages, I can't quite see the logic, but it is a logic that sometimes the Fair Work Commission agrees with. So 
I really think a major challenge that the Fair Work Commission had was weighing all the evidence. And, you know, I've been through some of the 500-odd pages of the decision, but they seem to prefer anything that's quantitative. So, for example, Deloitte's did a survey, a rather odd survey. It asked people who were not in the labour force, that is, people who are not employed, and people who were in the labour force, you know, whether or not working on Sundays caused problems and also then another piece of statistical work was done, well, you know, how much inconvenience was and they kind of got them to measure it. Well, some of these were pretty pretty bodgy. We argued that. We provided expert evidence in critiquing some of those studies. But the moment something was numerical, the Fair Work Commission seemed to accept it, whereas, for example, the work that my colleague Fiona did, which is a series of terrific interviews because we said, okay, it's clear that Sundays are different from Saturdays. Why is that so? So we asked 25 retail workers, and depending on who they are, they gave us a whole series of different answers. Some of them said, well, you know, I quite like my colleagues that I work with on Sundays, but it does mean I miss out on X, Y, and Z. About three or four people just said to us, I've just got to have one day where I don't have to do anything, and that is Sunday. There's no kind of obligation to do anything. So for some people, it's not just family and friends, but there was so much evidence presented in the case that I think in the end it became quite a political decision. And I think, and we've seen this in the reaction since the decision came out, I don't think the Commission fully grasped that in dealing with what are feminised awards and low-paid workers, this was, in effect, instituting a wage cut. And the workers covered by these awards are not likely to be on enterprise agreements. So these are, if you like, the safety net floor is in fact the ceiling. They're not going to earn more money than is set out in the award and we know because of huge amount of employer non-compliance in hospitality and retail, some people aren't even paid their legal wage. But if you put that to one side, I really think that you've got to look long and hard at a decision to actually reduce the wages of some of the lowest paid workers. And I think that's actually what fundamentally sits there. And it's interesting in terms of pay equity because the Fair Work Commission is obliged under the Fair Work Act to have taken into account the principle of equal remuneration. And it did so in an extremely cursory way. You know, it didn't think that this decision particularly impacted on women. Therefore, it didn't impact on pay equity. But when you are lowering the overall wages of a group of people, and not everybody works on on Sundays at all, but you are lowering the wages of a group of people, and if those people are more likely than not to be women, then you are going to be having an impact overall on the gender pay gap. Perhaps we could focus on a couple of things that I wanted to pick up from what you were saying. So Mm. there's this idea that seems really crucial to the argument put forward by employers in the Fair Work Commission case that Sunday is just like any other day. And Mm. then sort of as part of that, there's this idea that women work part time or weekends because it suits them. And I think that the real silent factor in there is is an issue around caring responsibilities, especially childcare. I mean, do you think we could talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I think it's interesting because the Fair Work Commission actually agreed with our evidence that, in fact, Sundays do cause greater work-life interference. So they conceded that in their decision. 
But in the same breath, they said, oh, well, but it's going to change. So they, you know, they had one bob each way. They were pretty hard to go against a careful statistical analysis showing that there was greater disability working on Sundays and Saturdays. But they, they then said, oh, well, as a result of lower rates, then employers are going to work more people or give people more hours because the other silent problem which goes to pay equity is we often we focus on the amount per hour people are paid but what we don't focus on is the hours they get so that underemployment is far higher than unemployment at the moment generally across the Australian labour force particularly for women but then when you have a look at industries like retail and hospitality for women, it's up about you know 18%. It's extremely high. So that's 18% of people who are employed have fewer hours than they want to work and they are available to work more hours. So that also goes to pay equity. So this idea that somehow by decreasing people's wages, an employer might give you more hours. Well, quite frankly, if you're going to be getting the same pay for working more hours, how is that an advantage? And I do think that there is this assumption that Somehow because it might suit women, and often it does, because it honestly does suit women, and I've spoken in the past to nurses, for example, who will say, because of the penalty rates I can get if I work on the weekend, I can then work fewer days, and then I'm paying two days less childcare. So it's kind of worked out on that kind of basis. However, there's a big price to be paid for working on the weekends. You know, penalty rates were put in place. There were two main rationales. One was a deterrent to employers to try and discourage employers and the Fair Work Commissioner said, well, we, we don't need deterrence anymore. However, the other part it was to compensate people for working on social hours and what comes through loudly and clearly, as I said, is that people who work these hours, they might do for the extra money, but they do pay a price for which they need to be compensated. Right, so in terms of the original criteria as to why penalty rates were put mm. in place, that's still, still very relevant. It's really, it's really highly, highly relevant. And particularly when we've, you know, increasingly got employment becoming more insecure, more temporary for a lot of people, people have to be really practical about where they can earn the most money in a job that's incredibly low paid. Mm. And I mean, you spoke earlier about it seems like almost an attack on, you use the term, feminised awards. I mean, yes. what do you think the implications of this kind of, it seems like a gender-based value judgment or about the well, nature of I, work I, or have? I think, I think, Emma, it does go back. You know, we've got a very peculiar gender culture in Australia and I think we still see work that women do, particularly, you know, I, I do a lot of work in aged care and in home care, for example, you know, and colleagues, Fiona does a lot of work around disability care and there's a sense that work, the kind of work that women do for free, so a lot of kind of hospitality, a lot of retail work is seen as kind of female type work, it's customer facing work, you know, and somehow women are just imbued from birth with the capacity to deal with pesky customers and, you know, manage things and, and smooth things over and somehow that's not skilled, that's that's just what women do. But we don't value that work very highly. And so we have these series of low paid awards, so like the retail, like the various um hospitality awards and there's a number of them and, and there's a number of retail awards and there's a pharmacy award which was won in the penalty rates case but also like the care awards the aged care award the social community home care and disability services award these are low paid feminized awards particularly at the lowest occupational classification within those awards 
these are not awards like the Manufacturing Award where you're well protected, where if you're a casual, you have to be guaranteed four hours of work. Um, the conditions in the feminised awards aren't as good as the ones in the masculinised awards, and yet often men working in manufacturing and construction will be covered by enterprise agreements that sit on top of the awards. So for them, the award rates of pay are a floor, but they're not the ceiling as, as they are for female awards. So I, I think that we've kind of normalised, and I found incredibly revealing in the Productivity Commission report that they were basically saying, well, no go with police and firefighters and nurses because we need them to be working around the clock. And that somehow, if you're arguing hospitality and retails 24-7, we don't need those workers. It, I think there's a real sense that people who don't need a lot of formal education to do their work, are somehow their work and they are, are valued less. I mean, it seems as though it's a fundamental change in... Um, uh, the, the nature of work in, in an Australian well, context almost via a legislative means. It, it, it is, Emma, but it's not the first one. I mean, we've seen other whittling away of conditions. What I think is, um, and I'm, it's going to sound like a Pollyanna here, but what I feel is a bit more optimistic about is actually the level of community outrage. I think people actually got what had happened because the decision was going to be so political, whichever way it went, and there'd been such a big build-up to it, that when the decision came out and everybody, including the current federal government, you know, kind of seemed there was a bit of shock horror, oh dear, you know, does this actually mean people are going to be losing wages? And I think it's still reverberating out there in the community. It's been a big political issue for the government to be able to push through tax cuts for business because people are saying, quite rightly, well, hang on a minute, you know, tax cuts for business, and yet we're all also lowering wages. We know that we've got a problem in our economy because wage growth is stagnant. So there's a whole lot of illogicalities, if I can say that, um, mm. about some of the arguments. But I do think that there's now a greater realisation, and I'm hoping that in terms of other decisions that the Fair Work Commissioner will make, that they actually have regard, you know, to some of their objects because they are, in fact, under the um, modern award objectives, they are required to take account of a series of things, but they are explicitly required to have an account, take account of the needs of the low paid. And I really don't think you could say that this decision did that in a serious fashion. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is a slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time. <laughs>